night racing fans. Here we go! <laughs> Bloodbath and Beyond, episode 30. I'm Casey Mitchell. And I'm Burton Cody. And today we're getting the hell out of Texas with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. It's action and horror, it's horror and action, it's Bert and Casey, it's Casey and Bert. Bloodbath and Beyond. Alright, there's good news and there's bad news. What should I say first? Give me the bad news the first. Bad news first. This is a this is an insane, misguided film. But the good news is that This is an insane, misguided yeah, film. And it's better than part three. I'm gonna say that right off the bat. Well that takes no that takes little to no effort. This is true, but they had $600,000 to work with on this picture, while Part 3 was a much larger budgeted New Line Cinema production. Well, this, this movie is interesting because the opening narration starts by immediately shitting on the other two sequels. Oh yes, two minor incidents, I think. Yet apparently related. Apparently related. <laughs> then again, nothing. For five long yeah. years, silence. Well, the by the way... This uh, this movie also invalidates the opening narration to part three, where it says that one of the family members was was uh, apprehended by saying that none of the family members have ever been apprehended. Well, it goes to uh, it's important to say that this was directed by the co-writer of the very original, Ken Hankel, who desperately needs Toby Hooper to rein in rein him. In. I really think he made this movie because he really wanted to pay rent or something. It's. It's not his finest hour. No, it's nobody's finest hour. Yeah, um, as with Viggo Mortensen in part three, this series is apparently a star maker for some people uh, because we... this All two of them. We have all two of them, but I mean, that, two big ones. I mean, Renee Zellweger plays our final girl and uh, Matthew McConaughey plays the new patriarch of the, of the Sawyer family. I, fa- I, I say that he's... Almost a combination of Chop Top, the Hitchhiker, and uh, the Cook from the original. It's yeah, kind of all three crammed together. All three with a remote-controlled prosthetic leg. I just like to say Matthew McConaughey's robot leg, because you'll never get to say that again. <laughs> all movies should feature. Man, what? What the hell? Okay. Okay. So, so let's let's start from the beginning here because. We know we're in for something when they show people taking prom photos and they're using the same whirring sound from the very first movie. They're getting you in the mood, bro, for the horror. <laughs> well, the, it's it's so bizarre though because it's 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 played against this sort of '90s alt alt rock music. Oh, the, there is no mistaking of when this movie was made. This is a '95 to '97 production. '94 to be exact. Oh, okay. And it was so ahead of its time. The general public really didn't see this movie until 1997. Because Matthew McConaughey's agent worked really hard to suppress this movie because he was becoming a bigger star immediately. And after. Renee Zellweger's agent, Jerry Maguire, came out uh, in the interim from when this was made and when it was finally released. Hinkle and the studio more or less had to sue to be able to put this movie out at all. Yeah. I mean, who who was going to see this anyways? I I really don't know. 
if if we hadn't been doing the show, I would have never watched this. Me neither. Uh, in fact, I'm telling our listeners that you really don't have to watch this film after we talk about it. Because we're going to spoil the hell out of this thing. Yeah. Although, if you're going to watch a Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel, this one falls so firmly into so bad it's almost good territory. It's almost good. It's almost good. I I think this would be hilarious in the right company. And you know what? I, I think in many ways this was intended to be a dark comedy. Um, there's very little horror in it, actually. There's almost... This actually has the lowest amount of blood on screen than any Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. Well, and it has zero attempts at any genuine tension or dread. Yes, and, and nobody gets killed with a chainsaw. Or cut, for that matter. Leatherface is such a non-entity in this movie. I, I wanted to say that too. Like he, He's really just in the background. And he's such an irritating... He's the most irritating version of the character I've seen so far. He is so campy Every, in this movie. Everything he does is punctuated by constant screaming. He screams more but than the girls in the movie. His... Alright, the, the final quote listed on IMDb's quote page for him is... Ah! repeated line. <laughs> he can't do almost anything without screaming. They, they've they really, really made him this transphobic caricature in this one, too. Uh, he, in, in previous films, you know, he, they, he'd put on the mother mask, or, you know, he, he would have, like, little bits of, like, oh, he put lipstick on this face. In this, like, he's... They mirror an earlier scene of Renee Zellweger put it in our her friend Heather, whichever one, putting lipstick on, with Leatherface putting lipstick on, and then adjusting his fake cleavage. Yeah, the the cleavage was a little over the top for me, a little too over the top. Everything about this character was over the top. I mean, he he walks around in this sort of Wednesday Adams moo moo. He's he's a joke. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll we'll get into. The, the way he's treated later when we get into the insane third act of this film. I don't know. I, I think he's emblematic of exactly what's going on in this movie and that I I don't remember. I don't know if I've ever seen a horror sequel that seems so self-hating of the franchise that spawned it. Well, I think the first thing that's glaring or just pointing itself out to the audience is how much Kim Hinkle seems to hate the teenagers. They actually have lines of saying, someone please kill me. Yeah. Uh, it, well, first of all, uh, you know we have uh, that teenager Barry, we, who might <laughs> Barry's like the king douchebag. Oh yeah. I first of all, he, I, I I love that he. I don't know if this was intended or just an actor flub they left in, but he pronounces prostate cancer as prostrate cancer. I think that was intentional to make him sound like a dumbass. I'll go with it. He, but he's he's the kind of douchebag that will. That, that always brings up his father, but he will repeatedly give his father different occupations that somehow make him an expert by proxy. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I, I gotta grope the girls to make sure they don't have breast cancer. My father's a doctor, he'd know. Yeah, my dad's a doctor. I'll get prostate cancer if I don't have sex when I'm turned on. My, my, my dad's a lawyer, so you better not mess with me. Yes. Uh, this movie is so low budget that they can't even show the actual prom. It just no. shows him standing outside of it. And there's that really strange girl who's looks like she's doing Tai Chi or something outside. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Why is she such a, a bitch? 
that's 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 not Bert's emphasis. That's the no, movie. that that's that's the actual quote from the movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of scenes, especially of um, Renee Zellweger's friend Heather calling herself a bitch in this movie. Yeah, uh, Kim Hankel has nothing but just venomous hatred towards these kids. Um, in the original movie, contrasted with that, uh, those kids more or less weren't so bad. And in fact, yeah. I think most of them were likable. And what happens to them felt undeserving, especially, you know, the the girl on the meat hook and Franklin, probably Franklin more than anybody else. Yeah, I mean, Franklin's a jerk, but you don't, I mean, it's still not totally okay to want to see him die. Yeah. In this movie, Heather character gets it worse than anybody else. <laughs> and her her it's... agony is dragged out basically for the duration of the runtime. And played out in such strange little ways. Was Kim Henkel, um, was he just, in his older age, just hateful of all these teenagers and all these movies? Just in real I, life? I think, I think Kim Henkel, because he was a screenwriter as well, I think he made such an effort to try to make these kids funny in his own way. But it's really tone-deaf comedy that is both too self-aware and not self-aware enough, it falls into such a weird gray area of self-awareness that it's... It just ends up feeling really strange. It There are so many scenes in this movie that feel like a film student's attempt at imitating David Lynch. I feel like this would have made... This has the makings of an X-Files sort of parody of slasher movies, especially once we get towards the end. But X File, but you know, but X Files has an, has an excellent episode like Home, which is essentially a Texas Chainsaw Massacre plot, and they did it well. So. That is true. That was the one that was banned for a few years, right? Yeah, Fox did not allow them to show it again. Uh, there was a there was a huge, tremendous, awful, disgusting incest subplot in that one. Yeah, and there was a. I mean, there was also the brutal baseball bat sequence too. Yeah, I hadn't seen anything that violent on TV when I was a kid. But anyways, no, I'm, not not at yeah. that time. Back back to this movie. It's, uh, it's really everything about it is just strange and off. Yeah, well, if if we seem hard pressed to try to sum up what's going on in the early going of this film, it's because all the films have opened with narration telling us that these are about bizarre crimes, but this one actually means it. Mm-hmm. So, all right, so we. <laughs> First of all, the, the kids uh, leaving the prom, unlike the other movies where the kids kind of sort of wandered their way into something or got stalked, these kids who seem to live in this neighborhood <laughs> end up driving down a road that they by accident. It seems like it's right leave. around the corner, and it seems like they're in the car for about 90 seconds. Yeah, I don't understand how they ended up there. I don't either. How they were completely unaware of all you know their surroundings like that. It's going so the cannibal family lives practically next door to the high school. That's the feeling I got. Well, yeah, but but there's like it's just down a dirt road that's too narrow to do a U-turn on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they complain about this. They drive around for a while. They bicker at one another, and then how about they that o- break how down. about that awkward setup? How they all end up in the same car. <laughs> Yeah, so so Heather and Bear is arguing with her boyfriend Barry after she catches him making out with the only other girl outside the prom, and 
And then Renee Zellweger just pops her head out of the back seat with her boyfriend, Sean. <laughs> it's Like, after they've been talking for three minutes. It was like Kevin Smith directed it or something. It was so awkward. But, but you know, but the stress of uh, these th- these two popping out of the back seat made Heather re- uh, wreck her car by running a stop, a stop sign. So they are to blame for why the car broke down later. Hmm. So I, I, I don't know. I, I guess that was supposed to be our setup, but it really doesn't read like anything. So so they, they break down in the middle of the woods, and uh, naturally, when that sort of thing happens, you separate into different directions. No, no, they get into a car crash. It was, okay, is that, so they, they got into two car crashes? Um, I'm having trouble keeping up with some, certain events, but they do get into a car crash that leads to yeah. their separation. I don't know. It's it's been a little bit, um, but either way, they they are separated, and Sean ends up meeting Vilmer, who played by Matthew McConaughey, who is a tow truck driver with a robot leg. Yeah, he steps out, and it's it's like this mechanized brace around his leg, and it makes the sound like RoboCop makes when he's walking. <laughs> I I don't get it. It's actually something I like about this movie. It's it's yeah. it's the right kind of weirdness. Yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that's the weird slasher franchise. That's, it it's really the, is. It's the deranged redneck, you know. It's not something cold and calculated like Halloween or something kind of, I don't know, more imaginative like Nightmare on Elm Street. It's just strange. And if I have yeah, to compliment this movie on anything, it, it is the strangeness. That does work for Definitely. it. Sometimes. Sometimes, yes. So, uh, yeah, so, so Vilmer pretty quickly dispatches of Sean in such a bizarre way. He, so he gets into his tow truck and tries to, tries to run over Sean in reverse. And Sean decides that the best way to escape a, a moving truck on a narrow forest path is to do a serpentine zigzag behind the truck. Rather than make any attempt to dart in, in either direction into the woods. And then he even stops beside his window. Says, what are you, you're scaring me, man. <laughs> and this is well after Matthew McConaughey has said, I'm going to kill you. And he snaps uh, the car crash survivor's neck. Yeah. Right in front of him. And then he... Like, he takes a long time to back up over Sean. He runs over, over and under, and not under, but, you know, runs him over several times. And just revs the tires It goes on for, for about two minutes. We don't see anything, naturally, yeah. but... Uh, more violence in this movie is implied than any other Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, but this, but unlike Texas Chainsaw 3 and its relative tameness, this one was never considered for an X rating. No, oh, and... Had it not been for maybe a couple of things, this could have been a PG-13 movie. Yeah. So, uh, Vilmer's dispatched... I'm not sorry, uh, not Vilmer. Sean. Sean is dispatched. By Vilmer. By Vilmer, yeah. yeah. And then, and we move on to meeting uh, Darla. Darla, what a what a great character. Was she like a real estate agent or something? I don't know. She was. She dresses like she's one. so strange, and she she works inside of like a double wide. And she's across the street from, presumably the Sawyer family gas station. Yeah. Uh, and she, 
she likes to flash her breasts at the local yes, her, high school kids. Her surgically altered breasts. She's very proud of pointing that yes. out. And she has lame jokes about blondes. Oh, she had, everybody in this movie has lame <laughs> jokes about things. Yeah, her she refers to her breasts as being phony as $3 bills. Changed my life, though. Changed my life. Hmm. So we're, we're, we're to assume that she is a she's a normal person in this relatively weird world. She kind of tries to give them some advice, but not really. I don't know. It, it, uh, like many scenes in this movie, it just kind of wastes your time. It doesn't really go anywhere. No, but she just, they just kind of talk and say, like, hit their marks and say a couple lines that don't entirely add up except for... Kim Henkel trying to make himself chuckle, and yeah, and then we're off to the races because Barry ends up at the the Sawyer family residence. All right, for the record, I watched this movie about ten hours ago, and I'm still really tentative in trying to describe the sequence of events that that occurs here because it just things just kind of happen, and trying to recall it feels like discussing a dream. Uh, it should be noted that Kim Hinkle teaches a screenwriting course at Rice in Texas. Does he show this movie as an example of good storytelling and character motivations? Yeah, Kim Hinkle's prior credits to this were working with um, Toby Hooper on the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then working with him on Eaten Alive. Uh now he's apparently working on a film called Found Footage in 3D. <laughs> so he's 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 got his finger on the pulse of horror, brother. <laughs> he knows what the kids like these days. Oh my! And I'm sure every poster will be like from the man who brought you Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, because he is a man that was involved in that production. Uh, uh, most credit really should go to Toby Hooper. <laughs> Absolutely, and and the cast and the location and the DP, all yeah. those, all the stars aligning somehow, yeah. and the, because no one else has been able to get anything good out of this concept. So is Kim Hinkle the Ringo star of Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Well, this must be his octopus's garden. <laughs> He's just the luckiest man in horror show business. <laughs> so uh, Barry ends up at the home of the Sawyer family, just from walking there yeah he's how should we say killed thank god i he run he does run into um the shotgun toting redneck well he no he's killed after first of all yeah he meets the shotgun uh, toting redneck w.e sawyer who i believe was the sawyer that texas chainsaw 3 said was apprehended i don't know Um, He, he really likes to prove that he's intelligent and educated I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. That's Ulysses S. Grant, but you wouldn't know that because you're a bona fide moron. That's a direct quote, by the way. Direct quote of a direct quote. I I actually kind of like him a little bit. I don't. I well, it just in the sense that I I think he's at least better than Alfredo, but who isn't? Who I mean, that, that's three. that's a plus of this movie. It doesn't have Alfredo in it. It really doesn't. I think any movie that doesn't have Alfredo in it is better for it. All movies on the Alfredo scale that do not contain the character Alfredo from Leatherface Part 3 
uh, <laughs> are better for it. It doesn't have a character like him either. Uh, that's I've, that's my own personal litmus test. Does this have Alfredo? No. Uh, they they have a brief altercation between Barry and W.E., who's holding a shotgun, and then Barry just runs into the house, says, I gotta use your bathroom anyway, and locks, Alfredo, locks W.E. out of his own house. He looks like such a smug little jerk about it. Well, that is the character. But it's so... It's so ridiculous because a, how are you, how did he successfully lock the man out of his own house? Does he not have a key? And b, he's he kind of dejectedly points his shotgun at his own door and goes, I don't know, and it's like just gives up. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, the the Sawyer family just giving up in this movie. It's it's an allegory, Casey, about the series. <laughs> yeah. well, that's true. And and by the and Barry does indeed just go in and use the bathroom like nothing bad is happening. He's just expecting to find his girlfriend Heather is probably in here somewhere. He's just like Heather, like it's, and then he just kind of goes and pees. He doesn't care. Uh, yeah, maybe it's like uh, Scream or whatever. It's it's a little self-aware about the genre. She probably wandered in here too, but without any of the intelligence or wit of Kevin Williamson's script in Scream. Oh Lord, and so. Yeah, so uh, McConaughey then finds Renee Zellweger <laughs> wandering in the woods. You want to see something? <laughs> Get in my goddamn truck. He really does talk to her that way, and she's like, okay. Where's Sean? Back at the other place. Get in the goddamn truck, and I'll show you. You want to see something scary? <laughs> Why don't you look in the he back? Pulled, he pulls the Dan Aykroyd from Twilight Zone <laughs> oh, movie. Yeah. And Zellweger leaps out of the tow truck. Yeah, and then there's that horrible 90s metal playing in the background as she's chased. And then Leatherface pops out of nowhere. Well, first of all, no, th- th- we have to go back to the, the running gag or, or theme of the family just giving up. Because unlike Sean, Zellweger just darts behind some trees. And <laughs> McConaughey goes, oh, well, live and let live and just drives away. <laughs> Like no one, no one before has ever thought of just darting into the tree line. Yeah, it's like wow. Yeah, maybe she just improved. You outwitted me this time. <laughs> so much for old Shawnee boy. But Leatherface is lurking in the shrubbery. Yeah, we have essentially uh, a remake of the original scene. From I I. I did like the bit of her climbing on the rooftop. Yeah, it showed some, uh, I don't know, some wit and athleticism from Renee Zellweger. Because she does leap onto a, co- a cable right after that. Yep. She she hits the ground from the rooftop, whereas uh, Sally in part one just jumped out of a window six feet up. Like uh, the actress really jumped. Yeah. <laughs> they want to hurt the stunt woman. <laughs> As we've already discussed. In part yeah. one. Go listen to that one and go watch that movie. It's far better. Yeah, that, that one's a, an actual classic. <laughs> well, this is a classic in its own way. We'll, we'll, we'll get the... to that. It, it hasn't gotten to what really sets this movie apart. You guys have to understand, this has all been a prelude to one of the most insane third acts I've ever seen. And in, in a way, I, I, I kind of like the third act. It's, yep. it's what saved the movie. Um, and it makes you question what Kim Hinkle was doing with 
everything leading up to it. If he was yeah. really aware of it. So we should right, get right into it. Yeah, let's just it turns out that Darla is it. essentially uh, the cook from the original. And she bags Renee Zellweger. And probably, I think, the more disturbing bit of violence in the movie, she gets attacked with a cattle prod and whipped with it. And it happens off screen. And that that particular scene is going, oh, geez. That's a yeah. little much. The, and of course, W.E., who is our cattle prodder, is really happy with the prod to the point where he almost he almost zaps Darla just for back-talking it. Yeah. It, that right there, yeah, that's, that's the most horrible bit of violence in the movie, I think. But I think we've also ignored Heather and her yeah. ordeal she goes throughout the rest of the movie. Uh, by this point, Heather has been captured. Leatherface has thrown her into an icebox. She'd already been in two car wrecks. Yeah. She has. Oh, this is gonna leave a scar. <laughs> she gets. She gets thrown on a meat hook. Yep, just like the original. S- somehow crawls off the meat hook. The meat hook just makes her kind of sleepy too. Yeah. She. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? She just kind of lies on the floor, and Renee Zellweger runs into her like, "Wake up." Pretty much what she's saying. Yeah, she, she's just, you know, it's a, it's a it's a meat hook doused in NyQuil. <laughs> they just put you to sleep. For Maybe a they while. poured some ether in it. I don't know. Yeah, in, right the, into the bloodstream. Yeah, in the, uh, injury. It, it, yeah, oh, you know, if I if I got meat hooked, I'd probably get a little sleepy too. <laughs> yeah, but she's kept around for the rest of the movie. Uh, meanwhile, Darla has Renee Zellweger captured in a in the a garbage bag in her trunk <laughs> and a really strange scene where she goes to pick up pizzas through a drive-thru <laughs> drive-thru pizza number one yeah wait what where in texas is this i i want to go yeah, there drive-thru pizza i think well you know i think papa john's does it now oh. in some some locations but okay. <laughs> otherwise it's it's not it's not too common and i don't think it was common then but hey, you know i don't live in texas i, I don't think know. they wanted a really awkward scene of Darla's kind of flirting with the the boy at the at the window. Yeah, what's that in your trunk? Because Renee Zellweger's just kind of banging around back there. Yeah, and you can hear her and, voice pretty much too. And Darla's just going like, eh, "It's just somebody I got tied up back in my trunk. You want to see? Oh, I'll get in trouble if I go look." Like he's kind of like, he gets kind of bashful, like, "Oh, this re- this sexy realtor is flirting with me." <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's also though that there are supposed cannibals, and she is picking up a bunch of pizza for everybody to eat. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> the dinner scene onward. We so you know in in the previous sequels, I complained about how the dinner scenes operated because it felt like the movies were trying to too slavishly recreate the first one and failing. Felt like they were just, this movie really makes no attempt to recreate those scenes. It felt like they were obliged to do it in 2 and 3. Like, oh, we, we just have to do it. This movie this movie has a dinner scene, and, you know, and Zellweger is tied up during it, but it just runs in its... It, it, it marches to its own drummer. It feels like if you, if you took the bickering 
from all three, uh, you know, between the family members, but and from all three movies, combined them and then amplified it to 11. Uh, well, let's take a look at all the strange stuff going on. Matthew McConaughey is claiming, or he's complaining about his battery, which I assume is for his robot leg. It is. <laughs> he starts smacking he... Darla around, and then they start having rough sex uh, in the kitchen. Yeah. Uh, there's Grandpa. Yeah, Grandpa's still around, but there's also, like, four other bodies just sitting around the table. Also, though, it is, Grandpa doesn't seem to have much of any makeup on. No, it, it, the, you can visibly see the lines where his, where his real neck begins and his makeup ends. He looks kind of like uh, an even grumpier tall man from Phantasm. Yeah, he's he's visibly a young man in old age makeup. Yeah. Uh, or even like old, or like someone trying to dress up as zombie Johnny Cash or something. Yeah, but, he, but Grandpa just sits there, you know, as, as Grandpa tends to do, um, and. Darla decides to take Renee Zellweger aside and inform her that what's going on is not what she thinks it is. This is not an isolated cannibal family. This is the big... And here, Kim Henkel makes... Yeah, yeah, this is the big shift in the series. Well, if any, in terms of why well, is all of this going on? This, this is Kim Henkel's addition to the mythology. Yeah. <laughs> um, because we're led to believe that the Sawyer family, and I would infer from this, not just this uh, iteration of them, but all of them, and possibly all slasher killers everywhere, are under the control of the not Illuminati. Yes, the Illuminati. <laughs> because, you know, she's, she's telling her, you know, like, it's not just politicians. It ain't that simple. It's the people who really pull the strings. If I said their names, I'd get us all in trouble. They've been around like you know, 1,000, 2,000 years. And we initially think that she's insane for saying this because Renee Zellweger immediately, you know, gives the the apt explanation, which is this is bullshit, and the only person that believes you in this is your insane girlfriend. Nope, that is not because the case. <laughs> because in the middle of the dinner, the doorbell rings, and this well, this German guy in a well tailored suit walks in uh, as the Illuminati rep. Yeah. Uh, and he opens up his shirt, and he has these bizarre, grotesque piercings on his chest. He's he's got like these runes that he's carved into his body, and he has this belt made of rings. Uh, and he licks Renee Zelliger's face, and then leaves for a long time. <laughs> then he just leaves. Yeah, he well, you know, he kind of he kind of like well, not before he makes fun of Matthew McConaughey for being. In his words, a cripple. You've been a Which, silly boy, haven't you? Yeah, he keeps using the phrase silly boy and talks about how their purpose is to inject terror into the world, but he doesn't really seem to enjoy the terror either. No, it's... He said, look at this. Maybe he really had a thing for Renee Zellweger. Well, they keep referring to, like, how... You know, you know, he's the string puller, and they're they're putting all this stuff together. But he kind of look and and you know, and they keep referring to him as McConaughey's boss. But he keeps looking down on what they're doing, like, ugh, how droll. But not not you know, but not until he gives Zellweger's face a complete tongue bath. That was pretty icky. It was really icky. It it lasted a long time. 
And just think how little Renee Zellweger was probably paid for this movie. <laughs> and how she wishes no one had ever seen or discussed it. Yeah, well, too late. Well, you know, well, first of all, the, with Renee Zellweger and sexuality in this movie, they, they keep, you know, they, they go to like, oh, you know, she's the bookish virgin type. But Darla makes a point of, of saying that Renee Zelliger's mom gets remarried every 15 minutes and all of her stepdads hit on her all the time. Apparently there was an edited subplot involving an abusive uh, stepfather. I'm glad that was excised. Yeah, me too. Because, you know, well, you know, because uh, Barry's like, I, I, I would never do her. She's a dog. I don't know. She's got a rocking body under those gym clothes. Oh, really? Thankfully, that was trimmed to a minimum. You know what? It, it go. I think it goes to show that the irritating teenagers. I feel like their screen presence was kept to a minimum. It was. That's because uh, Kim Hankel really hated them. That's true. He did not care so, for you so, to, to uh, earn any sort of uh, affection for any of them. So we we have a, a during all this we have a couple scenes of. Uh, McConaughey stomping on people with his remote-controlled robot leg. This is after he sets Heather on fire. This is the girl who had <laughs> a meat hook in her. Let's talk about that sequence, though, because it's not like... you. He- if you hear, oh, he set Heather on fire, you probably imagine this really impressive stunt where a person's been completely immolated. No. What happens is that Heather, still passed out at the dinner table, gets gasoline poured on her. Is, yeah, lighter fluid, yeah. They throw a match. By the way, her her back wound seems to have completely healed at this point. Um, they a tiny fire starts on her back. Heather gets up from the table, runs face first into the wall, and Darla shows up with a fire extinguisher and puts her out instantly. I think she calls McConaughey an asshole. He walks over and crushes her head with his robot leg. Yeah. All of which that that does happen off screen. Um. Oh, there was also where Renee Zellweger gets access to the shotgun. And she yes. holds the family hostage for a second. And to make Leatherface even more of a non-entity and non-threatening, he just kind of holds his hands up, looks scared. <laughs> okay, we, we, we can fully jump into Leatherface, the non-threatening entity. Um, because they also and they also recreate the scene that I, they always seem to do in every movie, where all the family members are sitting on the table and they just scream at the victim. Mm-hmm. Um, but Leatherface tries to win. He goes, "Oh!" and immediately gets slapped and told to shut up. Because he just kind of like sadly sits there, like, "Okay, I'm not allowed." To yeah, scream. the real star monster of the movie is McConaughey. Yeah, he's the main antagonist. Leatherface has nothing to do. Does does um, uh, I think he only kills one person, really. I I don't even remember that. He kills uh, what's his face? Oh, Barry. Barry? Okay. It was so yeah, me- I guess it was so. so memorable. So memorable. Uh, <laughs> my one of my other favorite bits in this is that Grandpa stands up in the middle of the bickering. Yeah. Picks up. He he stands up in the middle of the bickering. He picks up a knife, and you think he's gonna go stab somebody, but he just walks away and leaves the film. You never see That's him it. again. That's it for Grandpa. <laughs> he's got his knife. He's he's out of here. The actor just wanted the makeup off. Alright, get this bullshit <laughs> off of me. Grandpa just wanted out of this goddamn franchise. It was a comment on them. It was some meta textual humor, as they say. 
But yeah, it, it, amidst all this, things kind of fall apart for the family. Renee Zellweger just kind of unties her, her bonds. And uh, she doesn't have a weapon at this point, but she looks at Leatherface, who gets up to protest, yells, you sit the fuck down. <laughs> and Leatherface complies and just kind of whimpers. He's pretty lousy. This is the... And this is so different from the assertive, uh, aggressive Leatherface we saw in part three. Or, or the, you know, the sort of, sort of innocent but lethal Leatherface of one and two. In part two, he's almost like a Saturday morning cartoon villain. In part one, he's a sympathetic Frankenstein's monster kind of character. Yeah. Uh, but here, he's just this awful screaming thing that just whimpers and whines and ah! it's the highest pitch ah you can possibly yeah, achieve Kim Hinkle really liked framing with her kind of like or him I should I was about to say her because from the torso up where you can see the the someone else's breasts hanging off him he really liked to emphasize that and that's yeah. that's why he gave I think Leatherface that really high pitched scream so, I, I think he was trying to cash in on the Buffalo Bill thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> let's talk about that, because on the poster for this movie, one of the reviews says, Genuinely scary, Leatherface has a lot in common with the gender-bending killer in The Silence of the Lambs. Oh, Lord. So they, they were definitely hoping that people would make that comparison. Um, also, Joe Bob Briggs gave this four stars and called it the best horror film of the 90s. That has to be a misquote. It has to be. Or, or a joke. It has to be a joke on Briggs' part. Uh, yeah, that was even before Monster Vision. Yeah. Um, hell, I mean, uh, when did he show up on Monster Vision? Was it around, like, 97? I mean, possibly This movie only played at a couple of film festivals, and South by Southwest in particular, in 94. And it was shelved for three years. Yeah. I I feel like that might have been a sarcastic quotation, and they just ran with it because they were so deprived of any other commentary. Anyways. We're not done yet. So, no, because this leads us to my favorite sequence in the whole movie. Which is? Which is the uh, chase sequence, which is meant to recall part one and part two simultaneously. Because we have... We have Renee Zellweger running into a field mm-hmm. near the road, and she sees an RV, and this elderly couple is, like, sort of talking and enjoying their vacation, and they go, ew, don't stop, don't stop and pick her up, until they see the chainsaw-wielding leather They're drinking face. Bloody Marys. <laughs> yes, while driving. They, uh... They they see Leatherface run up. They they let her. They you know they let Zellweger it's in. It's a monster with a chainsaw. They even gave them names, but I forget what they were. I don't know, man. But uh, so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just trying to like process what happens here. So, uh, Vilmer shows up in his tow truck. Leatherface gets on the back of it and starts swiping at the RVs walls mm-hmm. like in texas chainsaw massacre 2 on the bridge sequence. oh yeah the opening yeah and then the rv just kind of crashes <laughs> it just falls on its side and zelliger crawls out like nothing happened and the couple are presumably dead oh thanks for the ride assholes yeah it's and so <laughs> we then see 
this I'm not making this up. We then see a crop duster take off. A yellow crop duster. Yep. In the, in the background. A a song that vaguely sounds like it's by REM starts playing. And the crop <laughs> the the crop duster flies really low and clips the very top of McConaughey's head. Instantly killing him. Like, it deliberately targets him North by Northwest style. Um, I'm guessing this was meant to be the Illuminati. I think it was the Illuminati at work. This just demonstrating their absurd amount of power. That the conspiracy theories are true. Yes, the tinfoil hat-wearing folks were right all along. Leather... Leatherface sees this and throws a hissy fit. Yeah. It, 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 he just, he puts his hand on his face and kind of like holds his uh, chainsaw really limply and cries. And Renee Zoyer just hops into a limousine that just appeared. Yes. Uh, it's also of note, you, you mentioned how uh, everyone just sort of gives up in this movie. Leatherface has the laziest chainsaw fit he's ever thrown. Yes. Just kind of swinging around slowly. It's it's very lazy. Yeah. Um, it's like if Tommy Wiseau threw a fit as Leatherface. <laughs> now, see, now I want that movie to be kickstarted. <laughs> Tommy Wiseau as Leatherface. <laughs> ah, that will be his Leatherface screen. Oh, uh, hi, Sally Hardesty. What's new with you? <laughs> Why are all these teenagers coming in? Hey, hi, Darla. I already ordered a pizza. Hi, Piggy. You think of everything. Hi, Piggy. <laughs> See, let's get this made. Let's get this I'm made. I'm going to give Tommy Wiseau a call. I'm sure he needs the work. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's get his people and our people together. He used to sell leather jackets to fund <laughs> the room. <laughs> he can wear them in this oh, movie. Then, there you go, man. Or we can repurpose yeah. them, too. That's right. They, they can call him Leather Jacket. He doesn't even have to be Leatherface. So he, he wants to show his face. It's all right. He can even have actual dialogue, like we just said. Hi, Piggy. <laughs> when, Why are these kids in my house? You're tearing me <laughs> apart, teenagers! When, he, when, he leave, when they leave, he just picks up his TV. Yo, bitch! <laughs> uh. throws, throws his cage full of chickens on the ground. <laughs> I see you, you bastard. He'd be just as compelling in that speak and spell sequence <laughs> from Texas Chainsaw 3. Food. So, the, the, but you know what? I, I feel like comparisons to the room are fairly apt in parts of this movie. And nowhere is that more clear than in our, <laughs> our final sequence. Uh, <laughs> first of all, the, 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 the limousine contains the, uh, Illuminati German named uh, Agent Rothman. Rothman, yes. Who who gives this sort of bland, meaningless phil- philosophy discussion? I think Kim Hinkle really wanted to channel David Lynch, but he failed miserably. Yeah, because he, he's just kind of talking about their raison d'être. And like, that is what we and, do. And he talks for a while, and Zelliger just goes, fuck you. And he drops her off at a hospital. No, he even asks her, would you like to go to the hospital? Or the police station? He gives her a choice. And she goes to the hospital. Cause I don't know why she couldn't do both. But... Yeah, I, I, I don't get it. 
And and when she got into the limo, it was like it was supposed to be a, a big shock or something. The way the camera pans over and she looks surprised. Like, no, no we know it's the Illuminati limo. You're not fooling yeah. anyone, Hankel. No. <laughs> Unless there was just a crop duster that was really bad at his job. So, this... This ending. <laughs> I don't know, man. At this point, I can kind of accept any ending thrown at me. Okay. I don't... Well, this this is where I feel like this movie really achieves room levels of... I, I, I don't even know what this is. Alright, so... So the movie ends with Renee Zellweger in the hospital being talked to by a cop played by John Duggan, who was the grandfather in the first mm-hmm. movie. And then we see uh, Paul Pertain, who played Franklin in the original movie, as an orderly pushing a gurney with a anonymous girl. That's how she's credited in the in the actual credits. Anonymous. Uh, being pushed on a gurney. And it's... It's Sally Hardesty from the first movie. I, I don't, I don't get it. I really don't get it. Uh, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get it at first. But then they, like, Duggan makes the point of going, like, "Do you know who that is? Do you know who that is?" And they keep echoing it as Hardesty passes by on the gurney, looking comatose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the movie just ends. It, it cuts to Leatherface doing his lazy tantrum and. That's all she wrote. That was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. Initially titled The Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That was that was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the series. Yeah. We are not going into the remakes. Uh, I can tell you, I've, I didn't see the 2003 remake or the prequel to that, but I did see Texas Chainsaw 3D. I think I even mentioned it on an episode. It is not worth your time. The remakes really amplify the size of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, in that it seems like the entire... Like, the family and the entire neighborhood around them are all involved in this long con. They're more generic slashers, too. Yeah. I Although, I mean, I, I would caution to say that the... You know, for all the discredit we give Michael Bay and Platinum Dunes... Not not that he was the director of the remake, but I I think the remake might be more successful as a slasher movie than the last three movies have been. Uh, Some ways, yeah. Some ways. It's not a difficult thing to achieve. Um, I can see that. So, what are your final thoughts on this series? Now that we're closing it out, we're done with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and we're moving on to uh, other pursuits. Uh, My final thoughts are, well, stick with the original. And, you know, if you're feeling a little more adventurous, check out part two. I I think Casey and I disagree a little bit on that. Um, I think there's some worthwhile stuff in there, notably Caroline Williams and her performance. Um, I think, and I really thought they nailed the irritating comic relief that they tried to duplicate with Alfredo. And in this movie, part four, I, I don't know what the hell they were trying to do. I... I think that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a great movie. I don't think it's a great series. It's n- I don't think anything that any of the movies embark on comes even close to recreating whatever worked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That was lightning in a bottle, man. 
Yeah, to the point where I don't even think the people who made that movie know why it worked the way it did. It just did. Like, it's just... It, yeah, exactly. It's lightning in a bottle. That You couldn't recapture it. It was the right place at the right time with the right people and the right location and everything. And all these things came together at that point in horror movie history where there was nothing else like it mm-hmm. to really be something special. You know, once two, three, four come out, the slasher is an old stayed genre now. Everybody expects this kind of stuff. And I... I, I, this, the series never found itself being an innovator I think again. They, it found itself imitating itself. Yeah, it felt like it was uh, obligated to follow the slasher tropes that had been well established by the time part two was made. And that was 1986. And to many people, the slasher genre peaked in, what, 82? That's kind of the, the class of 82. That's the famous one. Well, there are just a ton and, of classics came out that year. Absolutely. Well, well you know, and. And this this series, for for the worse, keeps thinking. And, and I'm wondering if this is producer intervention or, you know, various screenwriters that were such big fans of the original movie or what what have you. But the series, pun intended, keeps cannibalizing the same scenes and sequences and thinking that we need to see these certain things happen over and over again. Like we, we have to have characters that always fill the hitchhiker role. We have to have somebody that's always the cook. We have to have somebody that's always, you know, Leatherface. But presumably that's the same character, but I, I don't think any of the Leatherfaces act alike at all, enough to even now, be remotely consistent. None of them break the mold. Uh, I'll say if uh, Texas 3D did anything right, was that it, I, don't, I don't think it had a dinner scene in it. Leatherface was a straight-up just monster man on the loose. Um, it's a terrible movie. Not worth your time, but it doesn't have a dinner scene. And it doesn't even have a chop-top or cook kind of character. Leatherface is more or less on his own in that one. If, if Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4 was merciful in anything, it was just turning the grandpa sequence into having grandpa leave. <laughs> yes. It, uh, I think it was also merciful with the screen time, the main victims... Are on, mm-hmm. or, or say any I, lines really. I would give four credit in that it's such a, it's such an unusual film experience that I think if you watched it in a small group of friends, you would probably have a fun time of it. I don't think you can go in expecting to be scared at all, though. There's no tension, there's no dread. It just kind of. I, I feel like it was yeah, it was an along. experiment that just didn't work. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll say to the series credit. Um, if you look at each individual Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you won't get one confused with the other. No. They are they're all very, very tonally different. They're very distinct, each one of them. Very very much of their time, uh, or the studio behind them. Mm-hmm. The first one was an indie I... movie. You know, this last one was, too. Part two was Canon Films, or the Canon Group. And three was New Line Cinema. And it was the New Line Cinema one was the slickest one and the most bland. Uh, this one you would never confuse it for any other decade being made. This is so nineties. That that R E that R E M esque music by whatever indie bands existed in Austin at the time. There, there was also some kind of there was a look to horror movies in the mid nineties, and this just has yes. it. The cinematography and the lighting. This feels so direct to video. Yeah. I think that's how most people saw it. Well, actually, I think that's how everybody saw it. Yeah, but it wasn't intended to be no, that way. No, it wasn't. Uh, 
it had a six hundred thousand dollar budget. I mean, it, it, they they make the most of it, but it's they. It's just I, I I really hate using the word weird over and over because I think that's such a non descriptor, but I think it's very appropriate here. I I think this is Kim Hinkle looking at the legacy of the first movie and going like, you know what? I could be the next David Lynch. I've watched Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. But I don't I don't think that Hinkle had any grasp as to what made that work. No. Um I I would say if you if you decide to just skip one movie in the series, skip 3. I think there's nothing redeemable about 3. Um but I really I would just encourage you to watch the first movie and just pretend these don't exist. For the most part, yeah. I I still think part 2 has things you can enjoy about it. I, I I will give Caroline Caroline Williams credit as stretch in that movie. I enjoy her. I don't enjoy the movie. So I'm, that's, that's I'm perfectly gonna... valid. Uh, part two is where all of the the best gore effects are, and sadly there yeah. was a, a whole sequence deleted from that we we talked about in the episode. And what I also wanted to say with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this series being each film being very distinct from one another, and better slasher series. Like Nightmare on Elm Street, some of those you can get confused if they're on TV, like uh, screened in a row. Like, wait, is this part four? Is this part five? Is this Freddy's Revenge? Friday the 13th can be that way, too. So, to Texas Chainsaw Massacre's credit, they each have their own flavor. Yeah. Definitely. But Nightmare on Elm Street probably had more... Probably the highest volume of good sequels. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I know you're no fan of Friday the Thirteenth, but I think it has some good ones too. Um, my favorite Friday the Thirteenth movie is Freddy vs. Jason. Well, I think I that's think the that one that works something. the best. I, I'm looking forward to reviewing that one yeah. eventually too. Me too. I, I enjoy that film. I enjoy that film. Well, I, I think that kind of wraps up our our Texas Chainsaw dialogue. I, 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 you. I wanted to tell you about. Oh, I, 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 first, I guess we kind of both feel like Sally at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> yeah. We're in the back. We're in the back of the truck, covered in blood, just giggling that we've survived this. Because uh-huh. behind the scenes, you and I were so reluctant to keep doing this, but we knew we had to finish. We had to pull through because these movies were not enjoyable. Um, overwhelmingly but uh three and four in particular yeah but we we survived we survived uh and i wanted to talk about my experience seeing the exorcist in a theater this week you know uh, that was how i first experienced the picture at college it was screened at the russell house theater the russell house is at the university of south carolina uh there's pretty nice movie theater inside and when i was a freshman they screened um, a pretty big variety of movies. That's how I saw Sunset Boulevard. I saw La Dolce Vita screen there. And nice. the I think the, the people they had running, there's this known Caroline Productions after, they really dropped the ball and all they screened were like movies that came out just a couple of months prior. And it, it was a great thing. And I had a blast seeing The Exorcist on the big screen. I was very fortunate. Uh, See, I, I, I first saw The Exorcist on television, uh, and before I, just like Texas Chainsaw 1, uh, before I saw The Exorcist, this was a movie that was built up for me by all the adults in my life. Yeah, same here. Um, 
because it, it was always presented as the sort of sacrilegious forbidden movie that was just too scary to exist. And, you know, and I, I remember you know being sick one day from school. I, I think I was like a middle school or high school student at the time. And this, you know, the movie started and I, I was enthralled. And, you know, my, my stepmom walks in and goes, I don't know if you should be watching this. This is, and I was like, no, no, I really want to see it. And I loved it, man. It's, to this day, it's one of my favorite movies. And I, I'm not going to give a review of the film here because that would take way too no, long. No, yeah, me neither, man. That, that's a, that's another that is day one of the golden time. gods of horror cinema. And it's, uh, there's a it lot is one of the best be films of the 1970s, period. Absolutely. But, you know. I mean, one of the best films, period, I would even argue. It's it's very, very, very strong. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, from there, I saw it on DVD and Blu-ray and so on. I've, I've seen it a lot. But this was the first chance I got to see it in a theater. And so I went to uh, my local theater, The Narrow. Which is a cool which theater, is a, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's very nice. Yeah, they have an old balcony up yeah. there and everything. And, you know, it's a historic building uh, in Norfolk where I live. And um, but let me tell you. Fantastic movie. Uh, looks great on a big screen. Perhaps the worst theater experience of my life. Mm, care to elaborate? And absolutely. And this is this is not to the discredit of the narrow theater because they run a wonderful place. Um, this is the discredit of the hosts and the audience and attendance. First of all, my first sign that this was going to be kind of bad should have been that the street the narrow was on was blocked off that night because they were doing a masquerade block party where I say this, but it was really just people in costumes standing around and drinking. That's um, a block so party, you, yeah. I should have known there would be a connection between the drunks at the block party and the humongous line forming in front of the narrow, which was bigger than I've usually seen a line at the narrow get. I see where you're getting at here. All right. So, first thing is this was hosted not by the narrow but by our local alternative newspaper alt daily which is like the kind of uh cool local you know hipster paper uh Mm. not not to their discredit you know i'm sure they do some fine work and they've they've hosted quite a few events you know like previously they i saw beetlejuice at the narrow thanks to them and Shaun of the dead's been there a couple times thanks to them and princess bride and so on so they do monthly events um but this movie, first of all, they they were at the Alt Daily staff were at the front of the theater and they were selling two dollar Paps Blue Ribbons. I I knew I was in for the not the experience I was looking for when the MC from Alt Daily said, "You know, we got some beers up here. Uh, if anybody in the crowd wants to talk back to the movie, whatever, man, just have fun tonight." No, you don't encourage that. You don't encourage that, and the and like you. All right, I, I'm going to go on a mini rant here about the Mystery Science Theater 3000 crowd. Because as much as I enjoy MST3K, I think that that has created some expectations in our generation of how you're meant to respond to movies. I think there are cases where it's totally acceptable to do that. I First of all, if you're in your living room with friends and you've all seen this movie before or the movie is so abysmally bad that the only way to make it entertaining for yourselves is to do that, I'm all for that. Um but there are some people, in this theater's case, several, who don't realize that in a theater, while watching a movie that's considered an icon of American film, that's probably not the venue for your Rift Tracks audition tape. Hmm. Um, so, uh, another wrinkle that they added to this was that they the theater 
which is only one screen, had double booked the venue for a Rocky Horror Picture Show at midnight after the showing. Now, what this meant was that the balcony was closed and only opened to Rocky Horror cast members who decided they were going to treat this movie like Rocky Horror Picture Show. No, I... I think Rocky Horror is fine in and of itself. I think it's an I think it's an entertaining cult movie. I don't have any issue with it, but I don't like. I just kind of want keep the it with Rocky Horror. Horror. Yeah, exactly. So the the film opens, and we have uh, you know the film opens with that shot of the sun rising, and you hear some Arabic chanting. The crowd is already laughing that someone is ta- speaking in Arabic. So, point one. Yes. Everyone in the crowd, almost everyone, like, I, I should describe where I'm at. Okay, so I, we arrived on time, but it was still so packed that we kind of had to sit on a side row. So, we, you know, we weren't aligned with the screen, and that's fine. But I, But the guy behind me, when they said, you guys can talk about the screen, yelled, oh, f- yeah. Uh. That's point one. <laughs> um, so so there's two couples sitting behind me and my girlfriend. Uh, the couple behind me to my, to my right, the boyfriend is audibly drunk and sounds like a huge douche bro. But his girlfriend is kind of restraining him the whole movie and going like, he's like, well, they're all, they're all telling jokes and shit. Why can't I? And she's like, because you're going to be better than that tonight. So point to that girl. Um, the, the other guy and his girlfriend immediately behind me has this guy that keeps trying his best material and no one is laughing at anything he's saying. And you would think that that sort of, that's sort of the, sh- the shame of knowing that nobody's caring what you're trying would be enough to police itself, but it's not. So, like, there's a seat, the scene with Max von Sydow sitting there, and the guy goes, "He's probably thinking, I am old." Mm. Not even a joke. But on the other side of the theater, there are these comedians that are just hitting every dialogue scene with everything they can, and that includes racist humor. That includes uh, several instances of misogynistic humor. Uh, Let me guess. They were pretty bad during the crucifix scene. Of course. Um, they, they were especially bad when they were trying to understand what was happening to Regan. So they're going through all the scientific tests and so like that. And one of the Rocky Horror cast members kept yelling, like, she's crazy because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. And when, when Father Karras meets Regan's mother uh, and she's wearing the sunglasses and she takes it off to reveal the black eye... You you think like okay they they can't possibly say anything about that they've seen where the black eye came from when Regan backhanded backhanded her mother all possessed by the demon yeah but but no this guy yells should have made that sandwich on time it's and, like all of the worst YouTube comments on a well and and uh. the thing is the thing is most of these jokes were rewarded either with humongous laughter or with Sympathy laughter, which is almost worse. Sympathy laughter. 
yeah, you, you'll hear a couple chuckles that kind of sound reluctant, like, ha, 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 ha. Like, somebody made a joke. I'm supposed to laugh. I don't know if this is funny or not, but I'll, I don't want them to feel bad about themselves. Ha, 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 ha. But, you know, so at some, at one, at some point in the movie, uh, the theater falls into an argument where somebody where the guy keeps making misogynistic comments and a woman in the crowd keeps yelling will you, would you cut the misogynistic bull and sadly i can't completely i can't completely completely uh sympathize with that woman either because that woman has spent the entire movie making really lame jokes of her own and then because she made lame jokes yelling who's he because she missed whatever scene was going on while she was making her stupid jokes. Uh, but not not like asking her friend, like yelling to an open theater, who's that guy? Burke died? Who's Burke? So it, this is just a... It's a nightmare of people trying to all get their material in. And you would think that, you know... that, that And a couple times the audience did shut up. It was primarily during, like, iconic scenes like the spider walk. But during the, like... During the actual uh, climactic battle between the priests and the demon, the audience cannot shut up. Like they, they uh. all, they all have jokes. They all have things they want to try. They all have inane commentary, and they're just going to shout it to it to, to one another. One of the greatest scenes in all of horror cinema. One of the greatest scenes in film history. One of the most powerful, emotionally resonant third act in the history of horror film. And these people cannot just let it sit. And I, and I don't think it's a case where, like, people have seen the movie so many times, they just want to be part of it. No, it's a case where there was so many people there who have never seen this movie. It's also part of it. I think, part of the culture. Um, I think there's some folks who think there isn't a movie made before 2008. Yeah. I, you know, so I, I'm kind of like, I, I really want to enjoy this movie. I'm with my girlfriend. We're having a good time. We've planned to make a night of this. But I am fuming in my seat for most of this. Like, I have this awful feeling in my chest. and I, But at the same time, I'm enjoying seeing the movie on a big screen. So it's this it's this awful catch-22. Now, I, I documented this. This was the worst joke I heard all night. Oh, there's worse. Oh, man. You don't even know. Okay. First of all. This this is not the worst joke I heard all night, but it's it's pretty awful. Anytime Regan was put into a sexual position, including when she's getting when she was getting her uh, yeah. CT scans in the hospital, and they kind of almost show her breasts, pe- like people going like, "Oh baby, oh yeah," and like whistling and stuff. So that that's awful in and of itself. But then we had somebody yell out multiple spaceballs references that were a propos of nothing. I, I don't get it, but but well, and, and you know, in case you didn't know, it was a Spaceballs reference. There was another nerd on the other side of the theater that kept that yelled, "Was that a Spaceballs reference?" And the other guy yells back, "Yeah." That, that just sounds horrible, man. I I think I would have complained to the uh, the theater people, but by that time, it's probably too late. It was too. I mean, they, they were. I mean, you know, they were announcing we still have two dollar PBRs here for you guys if you want them. So the the crowd was getting progressively drunker. The the people that were getting laughs were encouraging people who weren't to keep trying till they got their mark and got their egos validated. It. But you know, but you know, it's it's so funny though because at the end of the movie, the crowd still had the nerve to give the movie a standing out ovation. Well. 
So yeah, I guess everybody had a great time. <laughs> well, the people who were making the jokes were, man. I, again, I, I think there's a time and a place for that. I do. But I think that place... Not every it, movie is the room. No. And, and I, I think that place is in your living room. And I think that time is with close friends of, of equal levels of humor to you. Hmm. I I did not hear a single joke I laughed at. Anytime Father Karras popped up on screen because he kind of looks like Stallone, there was just, Yo, Adrian! Yelled out every time he popped up on screen. Every every time. Not There wasn't, there wasn't one scene that went by where people didn't do that. Well, and I, I think that kind of also speaks to how we treat horror now. Um, I've been to modern horror movies, and I, I'm told this is especially egregious in things like Insidious and Sinister and The Conjuring and so on, where you'll go into the theater and there are people like there like most of the theater is teens and tweens mm-hmm. and they're and they're all on their phones and they stay on their phones the entire movie and they'll only look up when some when something that's meant to make you scream happens they'll jump a second and they'll immediately go back to what they're doing so the theater is just this darkened theater that's meant to get you into the atmosphere of this horror movie has been is it's sort of ruined by light pollution this phenomenon makes me wish all movie theaters were the Alamo draft house because when I went to the draft house to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there were no phones because the draft house reserves the right to kick you out of the theater for that. And they use it, they do it frequently. Yeah. Sorry, they man. Have, they have copious warnings. I I wish Alava Draft House was in more locations closer to me because the nearest one to me is four hours away. And the nearest one to me is even further than that. I think yours, close, the one closest to you is the closest to me. And that's yeah. a good uh, 12 hours. <laughs> One of these days, though, we'll go to a, we'll go yeah. to a movie up there just yeah. to just to be able to say that you did it. But I I love that policy, and I I just I can't take the toxicness of people thinking that they're hilarious in a movie theater, especially when it's encouraged by you know MCs and alcohol and everything. There's a time and a place, and that wasn't it, and that wasn't the film. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, th- there are certain horror movies. They haven't aged well, or I think there's ones that were always intended to be silly, like uh, some of the William Castle, Vincent Price pictures, like The Tingler, you know. Yeah. Well, the thing is, though, I I, I saw Night of the Living Dead in that same theater, and no one spoke. It was a great time, wasn't it? It was. It was a fantastic time. It really. It. I saw the movie in a new light. I loved that movie more than I'd ever loved it, and I already liked it. Yeah. You know, I. I and, and again, like the the qualities of the film, it speaks to the power of The Exorcist that all that bad behavior, some of which I didn't even catalog, it 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 was insane. But the the power of this movie is that it still completely gets you, and it still completely compels you, regardless of how people are behaving. It made me want to go home and immediately rewatch it on Blu-ray in the quiet of my house to just enjoy it all over again. All right. The power of the exorcist, man. The By the way, the, the most Rocky Horror-esque moment in the entire uh, sequence of events in the film was the power of Christ compels you scene where almost the entire crowd started yelling it. And it, it became funny. It, it this, this part did become funny, though, because, you know, A, I, I can go along with that bit. You know, like, There was also the... There was also the Family Guy parody of it. And, and, and Austin... Uh, was it... 
Austin Powers had a parody of it. Yeah. Uh, this is the end has a parody of it. It's it's a very it's a well parodied scene. Uh, it was kind of funny though with this crowd because they were all trying to do it, but none of them seemed to know how many times the priests actually say it. So they'd all kind of start like a second after the priest. Like, am I? Do I say it again? Hmm. Is this where I'm supposed to say it again? I don't know, man. I just, you know, don't be that. If you're listening, and I, I assume if you're listening to a movie podcast, you probably have more respect for movies than these people did. But And the people around you trying to enjoy it. Yeah, don't be that guy. Don't be that lady. Turn your phone off and shut turn up. Your, turn your phone off. Shut up. It's not that hard. Chances are what you're saying is not as interesting as what someone who was paid to write a story. I guarantee you it say. isn't as interesting or amusing. What, what you need to understand, and I, I, don't want to, I didn't want to be the person to tell you guys this, but what you need to understand about Mystery Science Theater is that it's pre-written material done by professional comedians. I don't even like riff tracks all that much. I'm, I'm not an advocate for it either. I, I, given the choice, like, I, I grew up watching Mystery Science Theater, and I, you know, and I, I, can definitely see the, I can definitely see the point of it, and I definitely think there are classic episodes of that show. But honestly, given the choice between watching a riff tracks version of something or just riffing on it with my buddies i would choose riffing on it with my buddies anytime yeah that's if it's a riff trackable film absolutely yes so um we are going to waylay this episode into talking about another classic Mm. Uh, now that we're finally far removed from texas oh it feels so good man the air's a little fresher yeah it, it the the smell has dissipated uh, so we're going to talk about Brian De Palma's Carrie. One of my very favorites. I, well, another one of those icons of film that no one should riff on. I, yeah, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. <laughs> yeah, uh, th- I think that's I think that's our catchphrase at this point. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. <laughs> <laughs> our but, schedules uh, have been a little wacky right now. Yeah, they have. But we're hoping to get that episode out in time for Halloween because it's episode thirty-one. Oh yeah. So until next time, guys. Stay bloody, my friends. Let me ask you one question. Are you having fun here? Move back! Move back!